You're listening to Fair Game with your host, Robert Smith. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Fair Game podcast. I'm Robert Smith, your host. I want to start today by thanking all nine of our listeners who listen so loyally every day. Uh, we've had some really terrific guests on the show this year. They really shared from the heart their ups and downs of navigating this pandemic. And whether you've learned something or just felt a little more connected to your friends and family in the fair industry, I hope that these shows have brought you some value. With that, let's get to today's episode. Today's guest is a jack of all trades in our industry. He's a comedian, a stilt walker, a one-man band. I don't think there's anything he can't do. He's open for Weird Al, Neil McCoy, and Louie Anderson, and he joins us today from his home in Washington. Folks, this is Eric Haynes. Eric, welcome to the show, buddy. Oh, thanks. It's good to be here. So I do you... want to, before we get started here, I just want to tell you I'm uncomfortable uh, sharing from the heart. I'll be sharing today from my liver or my spleen. That liver and spleen also work. We yeah. will accept that. Right. Uh, you've got some pretty impressive names you've opened for. How'd you find your way into opening for Weird Al? Uh, that was a deal I was working as a part of a comedy team. We did uh, uh, comedy clubs and stuff for eight years on tour. And that was just a deal where at uh, Canocti Harbor Resort in California, we ended up opening for Weird Al. It was just part of a just kind of regular course of events. But it stands out to me because, of course, I was a huge Weird Al fan. So, right. Very cool. The man's hysterical. He's done some pretty funny stuff over the years. Is it intimidating for opening for a performer that is as legendary as he is? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There are certain things that really stand out in my career, one of which is. Uh, when I was a kid, I would listen to the Dr. Demento show, radio show. Okay. Um, and for those of you who don't know who Dr. Demento is, he is was the greatest purveyor of novelty songs. You would hear things like Alan Sherman, for um, as an example, Hello Mata, Hello Fada, Here I Am at Camp Wana, right? So th those songs that are funny songs that you've heard, or Spike Jones, or uh, all, all these other artists, uh, uh, Tom Lehrer, um, he would play them all in his radio show. And later on, uh, I had the opportunity, I sent him a CD of some some comedy songs that I'd recorded, and he used two of them on his show. So that was another example of something where I get to sort of, sort of like if somebody was a huge Monty Python fan, and all of a sudden they were asked to be on the Monty Python, one of their shows, it was a big deal for me. Uh, yeah. Same thing with Weird Al, because that was kind of one of those things you go through your life and you find certain points in your life where you find your tribe. One of my tribes was the novelty song community. So those really stand out to me a lot. That's cool. How did you get into comedy? Well, I'd been doing performing for a long time, um, doing things like singing telegrams. I was working as a clown. I was doing, uh, I was a dance major in college. So I was doing dance performances, uh, doing theater, uh, toured for theater companies and everything. And then uh, finally went back to school to finish my degree. And when I did, a guy that I had worked with before when I was a kid, he was a fellow juggler in, in Missoula. Um, he'd been doing comedy clubs, but hadn't really uh, broken through into larger things. But he was a very ambitious guy. So we ended up working together for eight years where he would do most of the booking and we would go on tour and um, eventually ended up being called the Rock and Roll Comedy Circus of Death. 
because <laughs> we did a radio interview one time and they asked, well, what's your show like? And I said, well, it's kind of like the rock and roll comedy circus of death. And we both looked at each other and went, okay, that's a t-shirt. That's a t-shirt someone yep. would want to buy, even if they'd never seen the show. So that's ended up how it ended up being named, but that's, uh, that was kind of the introduction. We would be on the road for two weeks of every month year round from mm -hmm. 1995 through 2003 when we went our separate ways. Really cool. I mean, you've got some stories. You've been in the you've been in the game a long time. You're kind of a jack of all trades in this industry. You know, yeah, I check your website. You're still Walker comedian, a one man band. Um, I, I kind of want to talk about your one man band rig for a minute because I remember seeing it when we worked. I think it was Fresno. We worked together, yeah. and I, I was looking at it. Of course, I've seen you know other guys. You know, different rigs. Mark Dobson's got a rig band alone. Everybody's kind of got their own setup for their one man band. Um, it's fascinating to me how everything goes together. Do you see, is there a look of, uh, a fascination on the faces of your audience when you're strolling around a fair or you're performing that they're just looking at this spectacle that is a one man band? Yes. Oh, you wanted more. <laughs> okay. It's up to you, man. <laughs> it's clearly going to be your show. <laughs> so, so uh, the, more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to give you yes or no answers for the entire rest of the interview. Right. Uh, so my one man band, what I did when I designed it is uh, part of, part of what I was going for was the look of having something that was older. I like the idea of something being from anywhere from the 1800s to 1920 or so. That's the look I was going for. Um, and I was thinking in terms of uh, Disney or Pixar or anything else like that at the time of, um, something that would fit into that kind of a situation. Um, what I was making a one-man band for was to accompany myself because a, as a comedian, I'd written a bunch of different songs. I would do novelty songs during the show of comedy songs that I'd written, and I'd usually play them on guitar and a couple on banjo. And I had written a bunch of other songs that really didn't fit all that well within the context of a comedy club show. And I wanted a way to be able to play those, and I didn't want to have to get somebody to accompany me, that ends up being a big pain. So I was making a one-man band, not even realizing how uh, how influenced I was by the show Mary Poppins, where Bert, the one-man band, comes yep. out and does his little scene right there. Sure. So I was loading out of a show um, that I had just done for the Edmonds Waterfront Festival, and Craig Cook, who's an agent, uh, was there. He's the agent who booked me there. And he looked at this big pile of stuff because I had a six-foot unicycle, juggling equipment, um, a couple marionettes, uh, all this stuff loaded onto a cart that I was pushing through. So it's really just a wire rack cart. So it just looked like this big pile of stuff. And he said, you know who you remind me of is the Burt character from Mary Poppins. And at this point, I had not told Craig that I had a one-man band rig halfway built in my garage that I was going to be bringing out in like a couple weeks. And it popped into my head, oh, that's where I got that from. So that was probably the biggest influence for making it look like it did. Um, because they're in the back of my head, that's what a one-man band should look like, is something like that character. So it's got all kinds of brass. Mine has all kinds of uh, brass horns and bells and whistles that are located right on the front of it. I think Mark Dobson's is more... Uh, of a thing where he's got harmonica rack and a couple other things. His is mostly his objective is to sound like the CD. So that's the angle right. that he's going from. Yeah. His setup um, looks much more modern is how I yeah. would describe it. Yep. 
And Bandaloni is, uh, has an incredible rig that he built himself. That's all, uh, kind of high tech. He's built it with lightweight aluminum and stuff. Um, his has a very unique look to it. He's got this big, huge sound system that looks like uh, an old fashioned radio. Yep. Um, and he does both where he's got a look going on where he's trying to be entertaining with the look so that somebody, um, uh, that that's a big component in what he's doing. Mark's emphasis is mostly that he wants it to sound absolutely musically correct. You know, according to what he's playing, he wants it to sound like the CD. Bandaloni is a combination of, of entertainment and visuals and being able to play very, very well. And mine is uh, more or less, I'm a character, a right. fashion character that if I went by, I, I try to make it as musical as I can, try to make it sound good. Um, but a big portion of that 50% of what you're seeing is something that I've designed to have an appeal visually where somebody could walk up, take a picture of it. Or, you know, if I wasn't playing well, they would still think it was a, a good thing based on the visuals of it. So yeah, it's a conscious choice. I wanted to make a sculpture, a living sculpture that would go by and play music. And so that's what that's about. Well, I think you succeeded because I remember, you know, when I was doing Conjure Machine out there at Big Fresno Fair watching you and, um, at that point I, I'd worked with Mark Dobson previously. So I kind of had a, him to go by as, as a reference of what a one man band was the thing that it, when I watched you, I immediately thought, and I forget which Pixar movie it was on, but the one man band short, it was a very, um, your setup's almost very vaudevillian. It's very, um, period based, the character that you've created. Um, I really dig it. I, I think it fits really nicely on fairgrounds. Um, you know, all of a sudden you just, here's this, you know, random experience that a fair guest, you know, they've just finished their corn dog and they're going to wander over to the midway and they, they happen upon you. Who's this, you know, very, um, kind of clever period piece. That's this spectacle of how, you know, how do you play all the instruments at once is what they see. I think it's fantastic. I really do. Well, thank you. I think part of our job as, uh, grounds acts is to transport people to a different place where, all of a sudden, instead of being on the fairgrounds, the atmosphere is set by the entertainer where if they see the conjurer machine, then that is a magical thing. They're not sure if you're a robot or a real person. Yeah, while, I get that right? a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and so that kind of takes them out of uh, focusing on what an everyday thing would be and really sets a tone for, for how they're going to experience the rest of their day. So. Yeah. I mean, you're, I look at your costuming and the creation of what you've got. Um, that alone, you could be in one of those, one of those streetmosphere characters at, at Disney tomorrow. Like it's so polished and clean. I could see you walking up and down main street at Disneyland as, you. you know, it, it, greeting guests and it just being one of, you know, as, you know, of course, prior to, you know, Disney world, letting go of all of their, their entertainment recently, um, you would fit there perfectly. Like you were immediately put into the, that's what I think of when I see you is that sort of, um, you know, almost music man esque, you know, turn of the century. It's just, it's a fun thing to see. It, it really does take, it took me when I saw it to, to a different place. And so I, I really dug it, you know, from the, for the fair side of things, you do a lot of different things. So it's not just the one main band, you've got stilts, you've got, you know, there's a variety of things you can do. Do fairs typically book you just as the one man band or do you offer a variety of options and they kind of, you put a package together for them? How does, how does that usually work? 
I offer a bunch of different options for some things like, um, like if I fly usually, then they're just going to want one man band or I'm going to want to offer just one man band because a lot of the other things that I have are, they weigh a lot. So for right. me to ship stilts and the costuming that goes along with stilts, especially if I do multiple characters, that gets yeah. a bit prohibitive. Um, for the fairs that are local to me, there's a fair that I've booked since, well, I think I booked the first time for Evergreen State Fair in 2006, maybe, maybe even a little bit before that, uh, shortly after I moved to Washington in 2003. And um, back then, I wasn't, I didn't have a one-man band. So I was being booked as a comedy juggling act and I would toss in a set as a stilt walker. And then as time went by, then we hit a, a big economic downturn and they decided that what they really wanted was to hit as many people on the fairgrounds as possible with entertainment. And so they said, we're really interested in just having you do stilt walking. And at that point, I think I had four stilt walking characters. So I made six more. Wow. And had 10 different characters that I would do, five main ones that I would rotate through during the during the thing, and uh, gradually just built up the number of characters that I could do. And for them, I would do a different character every set so that I would come out and I would be a pirate, then I would be a cowboy, then I would come out and be uh, a jester, a medieval jester with a leather jerkin, um, and Uncle Sam, uh, a pterodactyl. I have a pterodactyl. It's a a big creepy looking thing with huge teeth. Okay. Um, that's a lot of fun. But the, uh, but the objective was to make it look like they had 10 different entertainers that had been hired to do this. And it was pretty successful because after I'd been doing one man band, you keep in mind that I'd been doing this fair for, you know, a dozen years or so. I go by this one booth one year and they, they stop me and they say, thanks. We've been here. We've been seeing you all these years doing a one man band. I said, Oh, thanks. Uh, and then they said, wait a second. Are you the pirate too? <laughs> yes, yes, I am yeah. the pirate yeah. and the pterodactyl. And I and went through a list and they went, you're all of those? We thought this was all different entertainers. They hadn't put two and two together. And this is me walking past them every day. Every day. In all these different characters. So um, I think that provides a lot of value for the fair if you can offer a variety of things. But it's also, um, people cycle through so quickly that it's it's also a good thing just to have like a one man band is a roving act that can play throughout the entire day of the fair. And, sure. and I have enough of a vocabulary for uh, enough of uh, a list of songs to play that I, I play a quite a wide variety. So nobody gets bored. If they're a vendor, they're not hearing the exact same song every time I come by. Right. So you don't have a large, like pull behind cart, like Bandaloni does with do the not. sounds. I have, I've done that a few times. Um, I've got a, a sort of a circus vendor cart looking thing that I use for the comedy juggling show. And I've set that up with sound before and done it more as a thing. Instead of just being a roving act where all the amplifiers are on me, I would roll my cart out, set it up, do a one-man band set through a, a larger sound system and do you know a 15-minute set and then move farther down, do another 15-minute set, farther down, do another 15-minute set and break it up that way instead right. of having one continuous thing. What that did for me is it took some of the weight of the speakers off of my back and put them onto the cart. Sure. Which I think long-term, but I don't have a thing that I pull behind me that's a cart. Got it. Got it. So you've got some flexibility then with your setup with what you can provide fares. Um, and assuming that we get get back to fares, yeah. it's, uh, you know, 2020, obviously not a lot of fun to, to deal with, but 
I'm curious as to your your story for 2020 in the pandemic. Did you end up performing at all? I did in a limited capacity. So uh, what, March, when everything went down, um, I had just finished a gig and all of a sudden everything is shut down. The guidance from the governor of my state said that uh, entertainment was shut down and it had a, a, an explicit exception that said that if you were playing at a private home and everybody in the home was 10 feet or more away from a performer wearing a facial covering, that you could do that. So I booked a few things that were um, deals where I would just come and I would do uh, four songs. I would do three songs and then sing happy birthday to the birthday person. I did a couple of those. Um, another thing that was specific as far as guidance was concerned was retirement communities. So I did a couple of those where I would go, um, for example, one of them uh, was a rather large retirement community. And so as a one-man band roving act, I went all the way around the outside of their entire perimeter of their building, but their mm -hmm. complex of buildings is big enough that it was like a, a set at the fairgrounds. It took me an hour to get all the way around playing, wow. just walking straight. But that enabled everybody to stay in the rooms and be able to hear me. But it also meant that uh, uh, there were a large group of people that followed me all spaced out and they were about 15, 20 feet behind me and just walked around behind me during the entire set and just were walking outside. So I was able to do those, um, but that's that was the limit of it. And then for a little while, it was completely outlawed where he said, all live performances are banned. Mm -hmm. And now we're back to um, a thing where he says, live performance is okay under certain things. You have to follow whatever the guidelines are for indoor performance and things like that. So I did one drive-through event too um, last November that was supposed to be, it was scheduled a year in advance. What they did is they okayed it through the health department and had police there to make sure that people didn't gather. Uh, it was a drive-through event. So basically all the different costume characters, I was a nutcracker um, on stilts. Um, people would come through with their cars and you'd wave to the kid in the back seat. And that was kind of the way that worked. Um, and we had people who were coming around six or seven times, same car, seeing exactly the same performers <laughs> waving at Because they just needed to be out. They needed to see star, something. and Yeah. Star for entertainment. I think that, that once entertainment does open up and we start seeing more of this, there is a great need for people to feel a sense of community and connection. Mm -hmm. And performing does that. And, and there's uh, it definitely is going to be the minute it's open, as long as it's open under safe protocols, it's going to be mm -hmm. very, very popular. Yeah, we're working on um, coming up with new fortune cards. You know, we've probably because we we order ours in for Conjure in bulk, and um, we're looking to switch them up. We'll keep what we've got. We'll we'll eventually cycle them back in, but all of them are going to be. You know, congratulations, you made it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Welcome back. <laughs> Uh, but they're going to be they're going to be things that are more meaningful, I think, to people that are more focused on the the strain that they've gone through in the last uh, year to eighteen months. And um, so, hopefully, when we finally get back to it, you know, there'll be some value there. I, what point last year did it sink into you that this virus was going to have a real long lasting impact on our industry? I have a friend who's a tinfoil, and. So what he did, explain, if you will, real quick, explain for the listeners what that means. Uh, somebody who generally posts conspiracy theories <laughs> and is is a tinfoil in in. in so we got it. It wears a tinfoil hat, is what you're saying. Yes. 
So yeah. I, and he calls himself that. So I will just say that he was part of a CIA operation, his family was, um, in Laos. And so the backstory on that is part of the reason that he is involved in the whole conspiracy theory thing, because he was part of an actual, his family was, the reason they were evacuated was because it was an undercover CIA operation. So he has some, a little bit of grounding for this, but he started posting stuff early on, like the very first days that the virus began to be reported in China, he was on it and he was posting video of, uh, you know, a guy driving in a car and a guy with a Tommy gun, um, stopping him and them having the guy at gunpoint and dragging him out of the car with a, and having a temperature thing trying to take the guy's temperature and he was, had been refusing to take temperature. And I looked at that and I went, ah, oh, that type of draconian thing will never happen in the United States. But this was like, and in, now we willingly do it just to go to the gym. Yeah, exactly. But this was like in January before anybody had really heard much about it. We'd started to hear a little bit in December. And I think there were a couple videos that I, I had seen. So I was, um, for all of my shows in December, I usually have a packed December. And for each one of them that I did, I was, publicly disinfecting all of my props that I would hand to kids, like I'd hand uh, maracas or spoons so that they would play along for a section of, of the one-man band routine. And I was publicly disinfecting those with a spray bottle, clearly marked isopropyl alcohol, so that everybody would know that everything was spotlessly clean back then. So at some point, December, I had heard about the virus. I knew that there was a little bit of buzz going around. And so I was sort of on top of it for that reason. In case yeah. it suddenly came to the U.S., that things would spread very quickly. Um, the fact that it took a little while to take hold in the United States, um, I was more or less prepared for that because of what I had seen. You know, if, if a, a, a virus originates somewhere and the government clamps down on it that hard, that quickly, then they know something is up. And it was just a matter of time to say, well, are they just being overboard or is this the, the kind of thing that's going to be... And I, I initially thought that it was just them with overreach. But as we went on and we saw what happened here and how quickly everything eroded, I went, oh, okay. They knew what was up. They clamped right. down on it early. And uh, it was just hard for us to believe. It's hard to, it's like watching a car wreck. You can't believe it's happening right in front of your face. Yeah. But but then we, we end up in this situation that we're in now where it's out there. We know basically how it spread, um, and there are precautions that we can take to make sure that we could, if we operate within protocols, we have a relative margin of safety. Yeah. Well, and you're out there in Washington State. Y'all were ground zero for this thing, as I recall, didn't it? Kind of first start making its uh, its appearance in or in the Seattle area. No, in Everett, Washington. That's where Everett, I live. right where you are, is where it started. And if you remember the first nursing home that it hit, that was in Kirkland. That's about 15 minutes south okay. of my house. So, yeah, really ground, ground zero. One of the first cases that was uh, human transmission that was reported was from the high school that my kids went to. Lovely. Just down the street from me. So really ground zero. I mean, yeah. as, as far as the first cases and the first reportage of, of what was really going on. There's probably other cases throughout the United States, but this was the first sure. place where they caught it. I think a lot of things were being reported as being the flu or, or something else like that. But yeah, well, and I'd had a couple of friends of ours that um, were saying, you know, back in in December they 
all the symptoms they described, they were like, this is exactly what it was. But they didn't, they literally, they went to the doctor and the doctor said, well, here's your Theraflu, you know, and uh, go home and get some rest and and drink plenty of fluids and and you'll be good in a week to 10 days. And they were Um, maybe, I mean, of course, maybe it was the flu at that point, but there was so much unknown about it. And I think it was, it's easy to miss, misdiagnose this thing because the primary symptoms are the same symptoms of 95 other, other ailments, you know, we'll never know. I don't think we'll ever know if what was going around, if anything that was going around in December was the flu or something else. Yeah. I don't think we'll ever know true numbers on actual cases or actual deaths. I mean, Hell, at one point late last fall, you had Fox 35 Orlando busted the Florida Department of Health. You had a, a guy who, I guess, was in a, a vehicle act motorcycle crash on, I don't know, I-95 someplace. Of course, they COVID test him when he comes in. He succumbs to his injuries. It turns out the test was positive, and they're like, well, it's a COVID death. I'm like, yeah, are you sure it wasn't the fact that his spleen was splattered all over I-95 had something to do with his his dying um, I just don't, so I don't think we'll we ever know. Agree on though. So here's, here's the, where I land on this, because I look at it and I think there's been a lot of misreporting as far as COVID deaths are concerned, where somebody had the virus, but it didn't directly contribute to their death. They just happened to have it when they died, but because right. they did a test and there were other things where they were going, well, a lot of things don't get reported and we don't want to risk somebody going in and touching this body that may be infected with COVID. So we're going to call it a COVID death, no matter what they died of. So there's some of that that went on. Uh, By the same token, what we were talking about, there was a lot of people that were probably not diagnosed with it that died of it before people realized what it was. Sure. But in the end, what ends up being important is the actual statistics from the ICUs where they're overcrowded, they're running out of oxygen. Um, My wife's sister is a nurse. Their hospital didn't have anything for a long time. And then all of a sudden they were overwhelmed and almost right out of oxygen one night. Right. for the hospital. So what it boils down to is it's a real threat. It's not something that's made up. However, right. it is also containable to some extent through proper protocols. Yeah, I would agree. And that's where, where the frustration is, you know, for a lot of fair managers that I've spoken with is this is an industry that we've dealt with, with viral outbreaks before, you know, we've dealt with, you know, things like E. coli and, and, you know, H1N1 and avian flus and our grounds, we're prepared for that. All we have to do is scale our, our mitigation strategies. But for most states, we haven't been given the opportunity to. It's just very frustrating. Very frustrating. It's, um, you know, what do you do? Obviously, you know, for all of us, the, the shutdown's been pretty crippling. Um, I know it's for fairs and for entertainers and concessionaires on the income front, we've all been smoked out on that. Have you been able to, you know, come up with any creative ways to generate additional revenue, like virtual shows or anything like that? I've done some virtual shows. I had a backlog of illustrations that I'd been meaning to publish in some way for a long time and finally got those up and running so that I have those for sale at my website. Um, But that, that doesn't give me an, a, a large actual income. The profit right. margin is just small on it, but at least I've got artwork out there. That's something that I've been meaning to do. Yeah. Cause you're a bit of an artist yourself. Also, it's not just comedian and stilt walker. You've got some, uh, some artwork that you do also. Yeah. Yeah. I do some drawings and those are, those are available on t-shirts and coffee mugs or as art prints. 
but uh, yeah. they're particularly suitable to t-shirts and coffee yeah. mugs. <laughs> not really, <laughs> not pretentious when it comes to my art. So, but uh, but yeah. So so that was that was one thing that I thought of. Well, um, I've got this thing that I've never. It's an asset that I've never capitalized on, and so I finally got that out there. So at least there's something going on with it. But the uh, but as far as income is concerned, um, it doesn't match what you do for live performance. Um, of right now for this year. Uh, Branson has confirmed that they're going to go. So I'll be in Branson for all of April. And it is a show in, um, there was a five-day run in Florida in January of this year. So I've seen one that was working. I know that Silver Dollar City has been open. Um, I think they've been restricted in as far as how many people can go through there. But if you think about it, for the way that fairs are set up, an outdoor venue where you can be socially distanced from other people, um, the food is mostly outdoors. All of the exhibits are capable of being outdoors. The fairgrounds are set up to have a tent situation and things that have good airflow. It's pretty much set up ideally for what you would want to have um, as an event, as opposed to having people inside a building where you have more chance of everything being trapped in there. Yeah. So I, I'm looking at it and, and wondering why there hasn't been more push to make these outdoor events go just set up the protocols say you have to do this you have to require masks unless somebody's in this roped off area that's the eating area um and and open them yeah well i mean we've like we've dealt with it before that's the thing that i, I know on our side we're we've got people that are pushing and lobbying state legislatures to say let's go let's get these events permitted and you know even if it's not a fair if the if the fairs can get their non-fair revenue going with rentals for you know the rv and boat show or whatever that makes a big difference and it's just not it's just not fair happening. people don't realize that there is a year-round business that happens at the fairgrounds yep um and for some of them uh there's one i worked at where their entire thing is rv storage rv and boat storage they have uh, every inch of their grounds is all covered with that when it's not the actual fair season and then they have to turn around and make sure all those are gone for when their fair runs but that's their income, their small fair. Um, but every fair that I've seen, there's not anybody who shuts down and just opens for the week of the fair. Yeah, very, very few of them. There's, I think, um, yeah, it's very few. And in, in the majority of these, like you look at the, the situation that Delmar's in right now, they need to get their non-fair stuff going. It, that's more important for them than the fair. And, you know, LA County just canceled. They just announced they're going to, cancel or, or scale their fare down to very, very small. This is just, you know, if they can't get these non, non-fair events going, they could be in, in some real, real trouble. But there, are, there is some movement in the industry. You know, it was nice to see, I know you just mentioned working the event down in Florida. I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to the, the RV show there in Tampa. I saw photos of you and a bunch of my friends actually working, got a little bit of FOMO actually. I uh, I was a little jealous. It was nice to see some movement and see you guys actually out doing what what you do. How was that show for you? It was great. It was just like a regular fair, except for um, when I was be going out doing my set. Uh, I'd say at that particular event, eighty percent of people were wearing masks while they were outside. Yeah. Um, as far as the green room is concerned, all the entertainers are are in a a series of rooms that are the green room and we were all distanced from each other. Um, so it's just some basic 
sort of common sense, keep things apart from each other stuff. And, and it was able to run successfully. Now I will say that when I got back from that, I immediately went and got a COVID test because I'd just been at an event for a week where I was around a whole bunch of people. Yeah. Um, and then a week later I got a second COVID test, both came back negative, but I was, uh, pretty careful when I got back. Um, my daughter is at college, so I stayed in her room and wore a mask when I was around the house just to be on the safe side, just to make sure, sure. that things were going to be going to be. So, so for people out there who are either skeptical or don't see a way that this would work. There's, there's two sides. There's one side that says we can never open anything. And the other side says we could open everything and not have any rules. I am not in either one of those camps. I think that we should open, be very careful how we do it, keep proper safety protocols and open. I agree. So it's a combination of things. We open, but we open and we work very carefully for the safety of everybody involved. Well, and I think performing is all about managing risk, right? So if I'm up on a six foot unicycle, I am uh, in front of an audience. There's a chance I might fall off, except that I have the managed risk that I know how to ride a six foot unicycle. And I've done it at a variety of different um, circumstances so that I know what to expect. Right. So the risk to my audience is next to zero when I'm doing my six foot unicycle routine or zero. Right. Right. Um, And I think that's the mindset that we have to come at it with for our audiences to say that we have to manage the risk for this. We can go out and do what we do as long as the risk is within manageable parameters, then we can open. Yeah, no, I agree. I think um, from the fairs that I've spoken to that did have a fair last year, there's mitigation tactics we can use. There's things that can be done to make sure that we're safe. Um, I've already had a couple conversations with fairs that canceled Conjure last year that are looking for 21 to be able to redo it. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, people come up awfully close to you They're you know, you don't have windows, any glass in the thing, how can um, those kind of questions that we're getting and Sarah and I are already looking, you know, we've been since October looking at, at what changes need to be made on Conjure to make it more COVID safe. You know, are we going to have to put Plexi in? Yep. Do I hate it? I hate every bit of it because I like that connection to the audience. But if this is what we have to do for now, if this is, if this gets us, if it's the life raft that gets us 18 to 24 months down the road where things can be relaxed, let's do it. Yep. I think people will be more accepting too. If they're used to seeing Plexi when they go into their grocery store, there are certain things and, and conjurers already set up the original thing that it's based on was glass glassed in thing. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it works naturally. We'll just, we got to figure out a way to, we're going to put some little, you know, battery operated fans in it just to keep some air moving. And, uh, you know, we'll probably either out the top or, or, you know, like on the back, on the side windows at the top back corner, we'll vent it a little bit. We'll punch some holes in it to get a little more circulation, but won't really have an issue with, you know, people breathing directly on me or me on them. Um, you know, you, we just got to make some adjustments. Um, I'm curious. So you, you, when you went down to Florida, you flew down. Yes. How was, how was that process for flying? What are, what are any of our entertainers that, you know, haven't taken flights yet, like myself that may have some coming up. What are you looking at when you fly? What kind of protocols are in place? Um, there's reminders throughout the airport saying, please socially distance and wear your mask. You have to wear a mask in public, all of that. That said, I had a group of teenagers, about four teenagers, when I was waiting for coffee that that were giggling and talking closely and and moving up very close to me. So I took my banjo and sort of put it between me and them. 
But besides that, all of the adults seem to be spacing out like they should. Um, as far as the airplane itself, they had undersold, so I had two empty seats next to me. Um, they And they did that on purpose. There were plenty of people who wanted a flight, but uh, and I've heard varying things on that. I've heard from other people that they got they had one flight where all the middle seats were open, and then on the way back, uh, the airline had sold all of the seats on the airplane. Yeah. Um, the thing about airplanes is they do have a filtration system mm-hmm. that filters out the air and HEPA filters and then sends it back in. So as far as how it's, they already had that in place because they sure. wanted to make people not get sick. I, if you're wearing a mask on an airplane and they've got the filtration system, I think your odds are pretty good of it being safe. Yeah. And then just make sure you, you know, I mean, you're dealing with a plane anyway. You think about how dirty those tray tables and things like that are. The planes, airplanes are probably cleaner now than they were pre-pandemic. And it just, you know, be smart about it. Make sure you're washing your hands, not touching your face or rubbing your eyes, with, you know, with, unless you've washed your hands. Um, but, yeah, from what I, I understand, there's a bag with wipes. And I, when I first sit down, I'll wipe down the tray table, the handles, everything that's around me. Yeah. Just to be a precaution. From what I understand, those filtration systems on modern aircraft are actually better than what they can filter in hospitals. They filter it. They were, they're more effective and they filter faster than hospitals do because a, you know, an airplane going 500 miles an hour is stuck in a lot of air in and they're recircular. They're scrubbing that air and scrubbing the air on the way out. And re, I mean, it's really efficient how they, um, how they do it. I think from what I understood, like the entire cabin air can get, depending on the size of the aircraft can get recirculated in like I've, two to three minutes. I mean, it's ridiculous how fast that stuff turns around. Yeah. So, you know, be safe, be smart about it, wear your mask, wash your hands. I, I mean, that's, uh, I don't know what else, what else we can do with that. This is a long-term thing. This is, we're going to have some variant of this virus going forward for a long time. So we just have yep. to operate within it, operate within, um, knowing that Yeah. and figure <laughs> out a way to safely operate. That's yeah. And, and it's to me, short term, we got to make some hefty changes. Long term, I don't think it's going to be really any different than when you get to flu season and you say, OK, we got to get the flu shot. Make sure you wash your hands. If you're feeling sick, stay home. I'll, you know, all those typical mitigation strategies. Um, there was a, a video that came out on CNN the other day, a doctor. Um, I think it was an epidemiologist, but he was saying that we won't see normal again until probably 2024. And that's, he's looking historically at how pandemics work at the different phases of the pandemic that, you know, your first phase is your exposure phase. And then your, um, the next phase is how you start to, to deal with it. And then you get into the third phase where things are coming down, but you're still, you still got to use a mitigation. And then phase four is where you can take your mask off. Things are back to normal. You've got some level of herd immunity or enough people that have been vaccinated that it starts to die off. But even at that, Phase four lasts forever because in his estimation, this virus will always, like you just said, will always, you can't uninvent it. You can't un- uncreate it or can't, you know, make it just disappear. You know, there, you can mitigate it. And that's ultimately what ends up happening is it eventually, you know, we'll still hear in 10 years, we'll still hear about a hand, you know, 800 people a year, you know, dying from, from COVID. Yeah, it's well, it's a coronavirus, just like what gives you the common cold. Yep. So that'll it'll mutate. Um, it's just a matter of if it remains deadly. If we find ways to treat it so that it doesn't cause fatalities, then sure. it'll just be lumped over into the category of colds and flus. Yep, 
It will be. And I have, I have great, um, when you actually look at, you know, when you look at medicine and you look at what we've done medically as human beings, I have great confidence in humans that we're going to, we'll, we will figure this thing out and it'll tap out eventually. Um, the, the question in the, the short to medium term is what does our economy look like? What do our businesses look like? Um, how do we relate to others? Cause certainly on the psychological side, there've been some pretty hefty hits for that people have taken for so many of us that are, that are extroverts that, you know, we feed on being out in, in public and, and especially as entertainers and making sure people are happy and they're having a good time and connecting with friends and family. And with so much of that, that has been taken away, um, there's a lot of challenges that people have faced. Um, it's become very difficult. What do you think the biggest challenges that you have faced navigating this pandemic? I'm a combination of two different things. I'm an introvert when I'm home. I'm extroverted when I'm performing. So if somebody talked to me before a show, a lot of times they would be like, if I would do a corporate event, um, they would think I was very quiet before the show and they would be amazed that when I got on stage, I seemed like a, a different person. But I, I do this because I love performing. When I'm home, I always have a whole bunch of other projects going on. So uh, for me, it's been somewhat difficult because I feel like I'm handcuffed from doing what I'm supposed to be doing, which is entertaining people. Um, but on the other hand, I find ways to keep myself busy and always have. So um, it hasn't been as traumatic for me as I think it has for other people. If somebody is purely an extrovert and they live for being out in public and that's the way they are all the time, that's got to be very, very difficult. I think yep. the isolation is one of the things that is a one of the greatest arguments for opening the fairs. The fairs provide a community experience that allows people to feel connected that's in a safe environment and it's educational. Part of the charter of the fairs is that they have to have an educational component. Usually that, that has mostly to do with agriculture, but that also has to do with them showing things that have new technologies, whether it's a display on solar energy or uh, rainwater collection, whatever else. Uh, a lot of the vendors are doing things that are innovative, um, and that's where you're supposed to see what's new and coming down the pike. So within that framework, the fairs are the ideal way to deal with the pandemic of having people uh, have a community, a sense of community, a sense of all coming together, uh, eliminate the isolation that causes addiction and uh, all kinds of mental problems. Uh, we've seen an uptick in gun shootings, um, up, up, uptick in suicides, an uptick in all kinds of different negative behavior. And that comes from people feeling disconnected where they don't they don't have a sense of community and a fair is a, a very much a community activity. If you're entering animals in, for display or you're entering artwork or you're a, part of a community band that's playing on a stage, it gives people an opportunity to come together. We have very few of those left anymore because we're in a digital age, yep. but a fair is an actual real life experience that people can go and have a family experience and it's suitable for the entire thing. There's, there's not really a, a negative downside where you go, well, you know, the fair was the gateway to people being mean to each other. It's not really <laughs> the way it works for our industry. Our industry is a net positive influence yes. on the community as a whole. Hugely, hugely. And, uh, you know, not being able to have those, make those connections and, and not just with the fair, but I mean, you think I feel I'm heartbroken for the, so many kids who, you know, you, they're high school kids and they've, 
you know, they're 18 and they're getting ready to graduate last year. And then they're told, you're not going to, we're not going to have commencement. And there's not many things, Sarah and I were talking about this. There's not many things that as a culture that we have that are like checkpoints of, of like, this is your next step towards adulthood or whatnot. Like within, you know, being in New Mexico, I know within the, the Latino community, the quinceaneras and things like that are, are huge. Like that is a rite of passage for those young girls. And I think commencement, you know, high school commencement is a big deal for, for our, our young kids for, as they're, they're becoming adults. This is a big moment for them. Um, it's not a matter of, well, you got a diploma that was sent to you in the mail. Congratulations. It's, there's a moment there of walking across that stage and listening to the pomp and circumstance play and your family and, and friends are, are cheering for you. And it was denied to so many people and I'm heartbroken for them. I really am. I think acknowledgement is a, a big part of what drives us. It gives us some feeling of self-worth for the things we've done. Yeah. I, you know, I would agree. I know that last year, um, one of the girls that lives down the street from us was actually, um, when Sarah was teaching second grade was one of her students and she, you know, she's, she's real laid back and, and kind of a go with the flow kind of girl, you know, real smart, just, you know, does her thing and, and, and makes her way through life. But it's still, you know, to see them not get that moment and, you know, so many student athletes that, you know, are they losing college scholarships? Are they losing the ability to, you know, compete? Because that's what they do. Just like, you know, you and I go out and entertain and we've been told no. I think it's really important. Um, I think there's a, uh, an opportunity and a necessity that we're staying in touch with each other, with our, our friends and even friends that you, you know, there's people that you only see at convention, you know, cause a lot of us, like you work most mainly West coast fairs as, as I understand it. I, I run into you occasionally, if I'm out on the West coast, but, um, for the most part, we see each other at a convention and that's when we bump into each other. Folks need to be keeping in touch, you know, reach out and call those people or send them a message on Facebook. Hey, how are you doing? All right. How, how have you been doing with, with reaching out and, and checking in on your friends? I've been doing okay. I have a, a couple of people that I talk to a lot. Um, I've had a couple really long conversations with people that I would normally, you know, just keep in touch with, but it's been a thing where you call and then an hour and a half later, you realize you've been on the phone for that long. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've had several phone calls like that. So, um, I do think that's important. And I think once you call somebody and you have a conversation like that, then you realize how important it was for you too. So it's, it's good. And we, you know, we, you have other things too, like you'll have zoom meetings for particular things and that's actually good too see faces and hear voices, but phone call goes a long way. It really, it really does. does. Or, or, a, or a text or a, a message, you know, early, early on in this thing, I think somewhere around April or May, um, you know, I got a message on Facebook from, from Courtney Conkle at the Wyoming State Fair. And, um, you know, Courtney and our acquaintances were, you know, we're, we're friendly. We're not like really tight friends. I haven't worked at our fair yet. Um, but, you know, it's one of those where we see each other at a convention. Hey, how are you doing? We talk for two or three minutes and, um, and that's about the end of it. But she reached out and she said, you know, I know that the fairs are, are staying tight together. We're staying in contact and OABA is working with the, you know, and Nike are working with the concessionaires and whatnot. And they're, they've got some support, but we're, she said, I'm really worried about our entertainers, um, that they're being forgotten. And I just want you to know if you need anything, let me know. And I'm here and what, you know, and 
just that, just that little message. I didn't realize at the time, but after I read it, um, and then I told Sarah, I said, Hey, come look at this. And she read it and she was like, well, that's cool. That was really nice of Courtney to do that. And then I caught myself, I started, I, I was fighting back tears cause I'm like, somebody cared enough to reach out, Yeah, you know? And, uh, so it really does, it goes a long way, you know, check in on your friends. Um, we're going to get through this. I think somewhere this summer, things are going to start to pull back in our favor and we might get a little bit of work here in 21. Um, Speaking of that, what's your 21 look like? Are you, are you getting rebookings from last year? I haven't really sent anything out. I've got, uh, like I said, Branson, which had canceled last year that I was supposed to be there for a month. And so this year I will be there. Um, that's in April. Um, as far as the other ones that are later on, I'm pretty bad about contacting people. If you want to know the truth, the last word that I had from people at the end of last year um, when this thing, when they said that they couldn't do it was just a whole dates form for the next year. So like I've heard from right. green, um, I've heard from a couple other ones where they wanted to, to make that happen, but I haven't done anything. That's a real confirmation, partly because on their end, they don't know what the regulations are going to be. So I think that yep. there's a little bit of delay in getting out there and saying that you want to have things set up. I, but, I'm getting the feeling from talking to some of these fair managers that, you know, they want to roll over the act they had in 2020 or the, whatever the show was, but it's exactly that problem is that, it, you know, for me, most of my fairs were, you know, California, New Mexico, or, you know, States that there's a real, you know, kind of real heavy handed government going on and they just don't know what the, what the outcome is going to be. So I think we're kind of here in like 60 to 90 days out is when you may start finalizing some of these, which is like, <laughs> You know, some of us are used to getting contracts 18 months or so out and now we're, you know, three months out. And um, I, quite frankly, I don't blame them. I know that so many of the fairs in Florida, you know, just felt devastated last year when you look at Miami or, or Indian River or Sarasota, where they were literally shut down day of opening, like within an hour of opening. And you think of all the money that you, you and I as entertainers, we spend flights, hotels, traveling, food, all that to get just to get there you know, we're, we're probably a grand in just to get there. And, uh, um, in some cases more, and, and then to just be, have it, the plug pulled at the last second is, um, it's pretty rough. And so I think fairs are hoping to avoid a repeat of that. Yeah. So, um, if you weren't performing, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I like doing artwork. So yeah. doing artwork, I'd probably find a better way to format it to actually make money at it. Um, and I've, I have some things that people have contacted me for commission work uh, yeah. coming up that I, I need to really finalize things. So that'd probably be one of the things. Um, but everything that I'm interested in is pretty much related to performing. So building marionettes, building ventriloquist figures, um, playing music, all these things are, are things that are, are just sort of ubiquitous in my world. So yeah. hard to picture not doing a, a career at this point as a full-time live performer. Uh, switching kind of the family side of things, how has your family held up through all this? Not pretty well. So I've got two kids. They just turned 21. They're twins. Um, my son is here at home because all of his classes are online. 
um, for college. And then my daughter has one class that she has to take at school. So she's staying in the dorms, but basically the restrictions are so extreme there that, you know, the only person that she sees is uh, her roommates and that's from a distance. So if she didn't have that one online or one uh, in-person class that she'd, she'd be at home too. She usually yeah. comes home on weekends. So as a family, I feel like, you know, I, I know other people who are isolated where they live alone. They don't have family around them. This has been very, very difficult for them to deal with. For me, it feels pretty close. We've actually had a chance to really kind of connect as a family and do some other things and do, you know, have a game night and stuff like that. So that part's been pretty good. Um, good. So for my family, it's been all right. You know, I keep in contact with uh, my dad and stepmom live in Montana. So we talk to them regularly and just trying to keep in contact with people. Has navigating this kind con- this crisis kind of taught you anything about yourself? Not really. No, you're just like, nah, I'm just here. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just hanging. Guy. I've always been a dumb guy, and now I'm a dumb guy who's locked in his house. <laughs> yeah, I feel a lot of folks we've talked to, have, um, you know, they feel like it's it's given them a sense of resiliency that they can make it through. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I, when folks tell me that, I, I tend to agree with them. It does build a sense of of resiliency. It's, you know, what are you going to do? It's I, I think that the f- folks that I've talked to that are a little older, that are, are you know, my 40 and up, they kind of are handling this a lot differently than uh, some of the younger folks are. I don't know. Maybe we've just seen more. Maybe we've experienced more, and this is just the next thing. I've been through other downturns, changes in markets, changes in economies. Um, at one point, I would do 10 different corporate events for Christmas. And yeah. that dried up all of a sudden, all my, my comedian friends who were doing the same thing, um, all of a sudden that didn't happen anymore. And so they had to try to figure out where that chunk of income was going to come from. It's yeah. not the first dry spell I've been through. However, this is the first dry spell where there weren't other options. Uh, before I could say, oh, well, it looks like stilts are going to be a thing that'll be more marketable because the economy is turned down and they want to reach as many people on the fairgrounds. Therefore, I will build all of these stilt characters so that I can right. fill what the needs are in the industry that I'm in. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's the industry is shut down, literally cutting everything off. So the ability to adapt is uh, something that I kind of old dear. And when that's taken away, it's very frustrating. It's like you're held down and you're, you don't, you're, they're not allowing you to use your creativity to find a way out. And that part's frustrating. Yep. Especially for performers. I mean, um, I, I I admire, I've talked to several of my friends went and got jobs at, you know, at essential places, Home Depot or wherever they needed to go to, um, you know, I know a couple of people who have CDLs that had just put their trucks to work driving for Amazon or I don't know, UPS or whoever the heck they're going with, um, to keep some revenue coming in. And, and I admire that. I respect it. It's tough though, when you're a performer and this is what you do and you entertain and that's what you do. It's tough to all of a sudden just be like, Oh, we'll just go get a job. Where? I don't even know that I'm hireable. I don't even know how to write a resume anymore. Do you even need a resume to get a job? I don't know. I don't have answers to these questions. I'm 41 years old. I've run a business for, you know, the better part of two decades. How do I do any of this? Yeah. It's like, what are your job skills? I can be sarcastic or strangers. Yes. 
I almost want to want to if I end up having to go get a job if they they say so uh you know what can you bring to this job <laughs> I want to be like dude listen I'm 41 I'll be here on time when you tell me to be here and I'll do the job right is it a yes is it a no yeah <laughs> I don't know you know it's uh it's been a hell of an experience for all of us it's been it's been a, a fun talking to everyone throughout the industry and kind of getting an idea of where they're at. Everybody's coming from a little bit different position and yet everybody's focused on the same goal. And that is getting our industry reopened. Mm -hmm. So, well, listen, um, we're about out of time. We've been on just about an hour and I appreciate you being on the show. And before we go, Everyone who goes on the show goes through a little speed round series of questions. And so I'm going to ask you, speed round. I'm going to ask you six questions. You give me a best answer for each. Are you right. ready? I'm ready. Yes or no is not the answer. <laughs> yes. Yes. Is that the first right. question? <laughs> All right. Question, um, question number one. What's the last book you read? I read books simultaneously. So right now I'm reading Trusting God for the Bible study group. I'm reading um, P.T. Barnum, Struggles and Triumphs, which is his autobiography. Rereading that because I've been reading that. Um, I'm just wrapping up one of the books for the the Expanse science fiction uh, dealio that's also a TV series right now. Um, and I'm trying to think, oh, and, and I've been reviewing a lot of different pop-up books and Calvin and Hobbes and Bloom County because I'm going to be doing some illustrations where I want to have a through-line character that tells a story. Cool. So you're staying busy, staying busy with that. Yeah. Uh, if money was no object, where's the first place you would travel when the pandemic ends? I don't know. I'm not big. My wife always was frustrated because I didn't want to go any place with sandy beaches with nothing to do. I like having stuff to do. Got it. Um, probably Flathead Lake. That's where my family has a place up there, and it's just beautiful. So, Question three. If you could sing a duet with anyone, who would it be? Anyone, alive or dead? Yes. I would pick alive. But if they were, if I could, Louis Armstrong, probably the top. Guy. That'd be that would be cool. That'd be very cool. Uh, question four: Does pineapple belong on pizza? Yes, it does. You can go back in time and meet one significant historical person. Who is it? Well, that the first easy answer would be Jesus. Okay. And what do you ask him? What do you talk about? <laughs> I say I'm not worthy, and we go from there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. I'm so glad uh, you could be on the show today. If fairs want to reach out and get in contact with you, how can they do that? Uh, my website is comedyrocket.com, and there's a contact link there, and I'm easy to get hold of. I'm easy to find on on Facebook or whatever, too. So, Cool. Comedyrocket.com. Eric Kane's comedian, still walker, artist, one-man band, the jack of all trades. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today. We wish you and your family the very best. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to the Fair Game Podcast. Fair Game is a production of Robert Smith Presents. For more information, please visit robertsmithpresents.com. 